Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Curse me, Rose. Run for your life. Fatality. I'm Batman. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for taking time out of your day to join us for Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. It's the festive season of 2016, and we hope that no matter what you are doing, or whatever you're doing, that you're having a fabulous time doing it with friends and family. To help bridge the gap between now and the new year, as far as Release the Geek is concerned, we thought we'd share some of the best icon comics and games convention panel presentations in the run-up to our first round of 2017 episodes. There's also a little method to the madness here. These icon podcasts will have a direct connection to the topics and guests of some of the new episodes that'll be dropping in mid-January and early February. We'll give a bit more info about those connections when those podcasts drop, but for now we'll let you stew and see if you can figure out what those connections might be. This week is our festive gift to you. The most popular panels at Icon Comics and Games Convention involved a certain Raymond E. Feist, and this episode was definitely no exception. On the Sunday at Icon, Raymond took to the stage with local author Fred Stratum to discuss the seeming rise, or possibly renaissance, of speculative fiction in literature. It was a great discussion, and we really hope you enjoy it. We pass this over to the diva for her rating. Franku, what did the diva have to say? The diva has enjoyed this podcast and rates it... Completely salt-free. Thank you kindly to both Franku and the diva for the rating, but for now, without any further ado, please join me, Les Allen, as we talk the rise of speculative fiction with Raymond E. Feist and Fred Stratum. And now, we're releasing the geek. We're talking about the rise of speculative fiction uh, in today's society. And with me, we have Fred Stratum, South African author. He's looking very pensive at the moment. Recently published The Raft, which we're quite excited uh, to get our hands on in South Africa. Fred, is it actually in South Africa at the moment? Um, Yeah, it's been an essay since... um Last year, April. Last year, it, April. And it was released Well, that's really States. embarrassing from my side, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's, and it was released in the States uh, mm-hmm. at the beginning of May. Uh, that's right. The, that was what I was following up. It was that's, the release of that. That's May. the one. So it's actually got the US release, so it is available yeah. locally, but it was, was released in uh, the United States in May. And we also have another guy. Um, Raymond, Fe- am I pronouncing your name correctly? Raymond Feist. I, I think so. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. I just right. moved because somebody missed the lights around and oh. your shadow kept going. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to move over to this point. Yes, and so Star, Star's quite happy. It's, yes. It's, it's mm-hmm. uh, definitely creative lighting. Creative writing. No, lighting. Oh, creative lighting. And you've uh, you've written a couple of things, right? Um, that's the... Uh, allegedly, yes. What would people know you most for? Uh, probably not paying my rent on time. But if you're talking about books, uh, probably magician. Probably magician. Probably yeah. magician. I think uh, I think a fair few people here would actually know about that. So, gentlemen, I'm going to throw to you the the term speculative fiction. I believe was first attributed to Heinlein in the early 40s. I, that particular term, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what we're talking about is the idea that it's a loose extension title for anything that covers really science fiction, fantasy, horror. Anything that stretches the bounds of normality, I guess. Sure. Would that be accurate? Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let's let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Why not? I think it's a you know it's a genre, right, or a title mm-hmm. that that's constantly changing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got guys like David Mitchell coming out and kind of redefining what it means to rewrite the laws of reality. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think speculative fiction... What, is Dave, what has Dave Mitchell done? David Mitchell is the author of Cloud Atlas and mm-hmm. Bone Clocks right. and mm-hmm. Slater House and whatnot. Uh, so you got guys like him coming in and they're just kind of it's cross-pollination and mm-hmm. he's playing with time and he's playing with kind of traditional non-speculative tropes and then merging it with speculative tropes. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's constantly changing, but it's that umbrella, mm-hmm. just rewriting the rules of reality. Mm-hmm. Well, no, yeah. That's a very good general umbrella. I'm the, I'm the official geezer here, so I'm going to go back a few years historically. Um, I mean, you go all back to like Jules Verne and H.G. And, uh, Wells for like the original... You know, people claim that, that what we would call speculative fiction began with Mary Shelley. You know, uh, Frank, people, yeah, a bunch of people got drunk one night and made a bet. Yeah. And she was the only one a year later came back with an actual book. Mm. Um, but beyond that, a large part of what we talk about is labels, and a large part of those labels have to do with marketing. You know, so never confuse genre with category. Genre is literature, and category is publishing. Uh, when I was a kid, America kind of led the way uh, because we basically were putting out more movies that people were watching overseas than anybody else. Um, you know, I remember when Forbidden Planet came out, yeah. and it's like, okay, I, I don't see the wires and the guy with the sound mic's shadow on the back wall and all the things that I'm used to seeing in science fiction. Wow, somebody actually spent some money on this bad boy. Right. And it was, you know, like the first serious science fiction film. Well, that got shown all over the world. And Robert Heinlein got read all over the world. And A. Merritt got read all over the world. And I'm going back. And, you know, H. Ryder Haggart got read all over the world. What happened was the, the, the literature was always there in one form or another. But more and more people discovered it. Uh, now, when I was a youngster, and I would run down to the local pharmacy to go to the book spinner and see if there was new science fiction, and back then, that was Ace Doubles and Valentine Science Fiction. Uh, there was one category in the big bookstores, science fiction. Yeah. And what science fiction was, was actually fantasy science fiction and horror. Uh, because back then, horror was still considered a category. I mean, a, a subcategory. Um, then one day, you'd walk in the bookstore and see science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Because this guy, J.R.R. Tolkien, just started selling books all over every campus on the English-speaking planet. And they went, oh, we better, you know. So what was the fantasy part? It was Tolkien and people who write stuff like him. And, and that, you know, the Worms Overborough and then, you know, anything. You know, they were looking for anything they could call fantasy and publish. And then one day I walked into the store and it said, science fiction and fantasy. And over here was a whole category of horror. Well, horror was publishing code for Stephen King and guys who write stuff like him. Yeah. Okay. So these are cross. These are confusing labels, yeah. and I think I think he's right in the sense that it's all about wonder. It's all about what if. It's all about changing the rules of reality. It's all about saying, well, what if we took a lot of dead people parts and sewed them together and shot lightning through them, all the way up to you know, the, the really remarkable stuff that people are writing about super th- string theory and black holes and alien intelligence. Um, so I don't think it's risen. I think it's yeah. always been around. I just think more and more people are discovering it, and as a result, more and more people are writing it. Yeah, yeah. so the, the, if we're using the term, the definition of the term speculative fiction, 
it actually applies all the way back to H.G. Wells, etc., because it is an umbrella term. It's now just becoming more popularly embraced, I guess. Would that be, yeah. would that be correct I mean, to say? There, I mean, there's some books. I remember one of the first adult books I read as a kid was Lord of the Flies, right? Which mm -hmm. was a huge influence on me. Um, and when it got to the point of the, of the pig, its head, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? On the point. That, oh, that, sorry, spoilers, Lord of the Flies spoilers. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh -huh. It's a, um, that was horror, do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? That was, that was a horror trope, mm -hmm. and it just kind of hit me. And there was that little seed, like, oh, you can do that, right? You could just have like, this kind of, kind of by-the-numbers, not the by-the-numbers, but kind of linear story with a bunch of kids, and then suddenly you just toss in a horror trope. And it just kind of elevated the entire book to, like, mm -hmm. a, to like another level. And mm -hmm. I think the best speculative fiction is... is, is well, it, the best kind of speculative fiction kind of understands the layers of uh, using these tropes to kind of elevate fiction mm -hmm. as opposed to kind of, you know, uh, doing it just for the sake of it. Right. Raymond, would you say that where from a... Yeah, the, the increased adoption that it's, it's okay to actually say, oh, well, I, I read science fiction, I read fantasy... If you were to go back, say, even in the 80s, and somebody wanting to watch a show about dragons and an iron throne and all of these things, then you're, you're kind of getting pushed to the side. It's like, yeah, no, that's fantasy stuff. That's for kids. Why would there now be a shift these days where it's the biggest show on television around Money. the world? Money. Money. <laughs> okay. Look, I'll tell you, I grew up in the business. My dad was a producer, writer, director. Uh, he had an obscure little show. I don't know if you heard about it down here called Peyton Place. Uh, which was the first prime time. I, I, think, I think some people may have heard of it. Yeah, older generation. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was Dallas before there was a Dallas dynasty, before there was a dynasty. It was based on the Grace Metalius book of the same name, and it was on three nights a week, prime time, ABC, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. The year my dad died, it was number one, number two, and number four in the Nielsen ratings. Wow. Insane numbers. 30 share, 33% viewership, just, you know, gigantic hit for ABC. You don't see a lot of the primetime, you know, adult soap operas, why they came and went. And I suspect there may be, you know, fantasy will come and went. Or, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Viacom is trying a really interesting experiment with the new Star Trek TV show. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, psst, kid, the first one's free. They're going to broadcast the very first episode of the new Star Trek TV show over the air, CBS Network in America. After that, you've got to pay the fee to get to CBS All Access. We'll see how that works out. Hmm. I suspect, like Game of Thrones, that show will be one of the most pirated, torrented show on the mm -hmm. Internet. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean if, I've seen it. I, I, I don't get that culture because I get paid for royalties, therefore I don't pirate, but... I've seen people talk about how, you know, like 20 seconds after the episode ends, for all of you people who don't have HBO, this torrent site will now give you, mm -hmm. you know, yep. Game would of you, Would it be fair to say that <clears throat> speculative fiction being so broad that there's so much in there, that there's so much that traditional mainstream wouldn't have seen before, that when it starts to, we yeah. need something new now. We need new areas to tap well, because the other stuff was getting old? Well, if you don't want me jumping back in on that, because I was going to sure. say what I was going to say was that you know one, you can make money with it now. Two, CGI makes it possible to do Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. You could not have done Game of Thrones even ten years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, you certainly couldn't have done it twenty years ago. It would have been you know look at Doctor Who. I love Doctor Who. 
because it has a very strict set of belief requirements, mm -hmm. which is basically shut off your higher brain function and go with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. And so you see some of the like look at the Zygons today and when they were introduced like 30 <laughs> years ago, you know, the rubber mm -hmm. suit versus the really good CGI. Mm -hmm. But it's essentially the same creature. And and back in the 60s, it was like squint your eyes a little bit, make everything fuzzy and nice. What the whole you Star know. Trek funny nose type thing oh, yeah, next yeah. to a new it's, alien. It's like if 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 you ever if you watched all the Trek, I have okay, a friend of mine is David Gerald, the guy who wrote the original Trouble with Tribbles. And they did a sequel to that. Uh, called tri uh, Trials and Tribulations for Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. And one of the wars that went on when Next Gen... Well, actually, when the movie started, you know, Star Trek, the motionless picture, mm -hmm. um, when suddenly <laughs> the Klingons were speaking in an alien language yeah. and had all the makeup and the hair, yeah. and suddenly, the, you know, fandom being what fandom is, God help us all, went off on the smooth forehead versus the bumpy forehead Klingons. You know, which... They made a joke out of an Enterprise when the smooth-headed Klingon showed up. <laughs> but in Trials and Tribulation, there's this wonderful scene where they're going back in time to witness this stuff, and Worf is there, and they walk into the canteen just as the fight is about to break out between Scotty and the Klingons and all that. And one of the, one of the I think Bashir says, those are Klingons? And Worf just says, this is something we never talk about. <laughs> Because it's like we didn't have a budget back then. Mm -hmm. We didn't have money. So that's a big part of it is the technology has now arrived, both in makeup and costuming and in, in CGI, that they can do things that were impossible. So that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is, is that you know, we were talking a little bit about horror, and what I realized is that Stephen King rests upon H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft rests upon Edgar Allan Poe. You know, if you go from the Mask of the Red Death to Rats in the Walls to it, you know, it's like there is this constant exploration of why are we scared of certain things and why is fear a necessary component of who we are. I, I did a show with Clive Barker once where we talked about that, and I said it's like a safe roller coaster. It's like a roller coaster ride, you know. There's a hell of a lot of stress in a roller coaster ride, but you enjoy it. It's positive stress. It's like, wow, let's do that again. Um, you know, so I think, I think what we're talking about is we want to explore these mm -hmm. themes. We want to talk yeah. about these tropes. Mm -hmm. We want to go back again and see what the Rats on the Walls was all about, mm -hmm. or the Mask of the Red Death. I think, sorry, go just, ahead. Just, go ahead. just going back to the Game of Thrones um, the popularity and everything. Um, you know, when it was originally pitched to HBO, it was, it was pitched as The Sopranos meets, you know, Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord mm -hmm. of the Rings. Uh, and everyone went, oh, okay, we get that. But, <coughs> we but understand those two concepts. We understand it. And what, and what it did is, I mean, with, with Game of Thrones, it introduced a whole new kind of mainstream audience mm -hmm. because, they, because, you know, the dragons came in really late. I mean, the yes. CGI stuff came in late. And what they did is they said, this is a, this is a character drama, mm -hmm. right? So we're going to focus on this being a real in-depth character drama. Uh -huh. And, you know, when you, and, and, and I think <laughs> that was one of the entry points for the mainstream audience into the Game of Thrones mm -hmm. universe. Uh, if there were just a whole bunch of dragons in episode one, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe it would have kind of polarized people. Sure. But it kind of brought them in. Right. Um, and, you know, like uh, George R. R. Martin said himself, he said, I mean, it, you know, I mean, you know in, you know, he used to write for Beauty and the Beast, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and his whole, his whole thing was, you know, the, the studio execs would say, all right, so you can't have someone slit someone's throat, sorry, throat, <laughs> as I say that, uh, <laughs> on camera, but you can have a vehicle crash, 
and explode with a whole bunch, a bunch of people die. Mm-hmm. And he went, well, that's a very traumatic thing. Like, why, 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 why do you have, why is it okay to have a car explode full of people, but if you have a close-up of somebody th- slitting their throats, mm-hmm. that's something you can't show. Yeah. And that kind of got the seed starting in his mind about what constitutes kind of accepted mainstream <clears throat> mm-hmm. violence and depiction right. and, you know, and, and then kind of evolved. I mean, we know mm-hmm. that Tolkien is very literally black and white. You know, it's mm-hmm. good guys, bad guys, good guys hardly die. Mm-hmm. And bad Michael, guys die by the droves even though they're... And Michael Moorcock's at the other end of the spectrum, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> so, so he knew that... So D.B. Weiss and um, David Benioff and... Uh, in the show and George R. Martin, they knew that the way to kind of coach people into this and to kind of create a new legion of kind of fantasy fans was to make it universal, universally kind of humanized and and layered and, you know, and and, and I think that's an interesting kind of, you know, aspect in which speculative fiction kind of, um, like I said, is used to elevate kind of traditional drama tropes and structures. There's, there's also a, a, an interesting process by which, uh, you know, I've known George for 30 years, and I, I, the first book of his I read was Armageddon Rag, and I heartily endorse it. It's a wonderful book about a haunted rock and roll band, and it's great. A haunted rock and roll band. Haunt, haunted rock and roll band, That's yeah. Awesome. It's, it's a terrific novel. Uh, I, I met George and had him sign up for me in 84. That's how long I've known George Martin. Uh, and this is going to sound really cheesy to put it this way, but one of the things that happened, first of all, I went to HBO and then a lot of overseas money and guaranteed markets so that they could finance what they wanted to finance. But they did some things that were very clearly money, Hollywood behind the scenes oriented. They signed Sean Bean for one season. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I'm serious. It's like amazing actors there. But there was not a household name until, well, it's not even a household name, until they brought Charles Dance aboard, you know, very, very established, mm-hmm. and Jonathan Price. You know, these are guys who are pros. They are absolute, guaranteed, give you every inch of talent they've got for the part, but they're not stars. There was no star power attached to that show, but they came out with amazing young actors that we've never heard about. And this is going to sound kind of glib, but I mean, it's, it's they said, we're going to give you people you really love, uh, we're going to cut off Sean Bean's head at the end of the first season. Spoilers. Sorry. Yeah. And you're going to like it. I mean, mm-hmm. you're not going to like it. Yeah. But you're going to like it because it works dramatically like crazy. Uh, we're going to put a lot of people you like in jeopardy. So you really, how are they going to get out of this? And we're going to make Amelia Clark take her clothes off a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and actually, that's not so much a salacious thing as it's a real amazing manipulation of the viewer for about a, okay. You, you understand the difference between the word nude and the word naked. Nude means you don't have any clothes on. Naked means you're vulnerable. You're exposed. You have no protection. You know, so they made Amelia Clark naked a lot. And she was early on one of the most sympathetic characters there. So two things happen. One, first of all, you hate her brother within 30 seconds. You know, and when, the, and when he gets the, the helmet treatment, you're going, yeah. Uh, but you are so emotionally invested in certain characters, and she's one of them. Daenerys Stormborn is a character that she goes out and does really horrible things, and you're going, yeah, you go, girl! You know? <laughs> so it's a mm-hmm. masterful manipulation of the audience. 
Because that's what we want as an audience. We want to be manipulated, but we want to be manipulated in an intelligent way, mm -hmm. in a way that makes us feel like we've got to go yeah. somewhere with people. And, and that's why it's a great show. Yeah. There's, a couple of, there's a couple of points that have, um, that have come up there that I want to try and tie together and maybe give you guys a throwback to a conversation you had earlier. Sure. So the idea of if the special effects and the abilities were around earlier, then these things would have been made and exposed to a mainstream audience, and if they were successful, then obviously it would have grown. Let's talk David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> they mentioned we, we were talking Let's, about Dune. <laughs> oh, were you guys talking about it earlier? Uh, I yeah, know. we were. Right. So <laughs> we have Dune, which was written in the 50s, and it is a multi-million time bestseller. It's an amazing book. It's fantastic. You now have a movie studio trying to take that and adapt it to the big screen. Several but, times, yeah. Yeah, a couple of times. So it didn't quite strike a chord. Now, what I was thinking when you were mentioning that, well, if we had those sorts of technologies and that sort of sci-fi, Star Wars is an example. Nobody's seen anything like this before, hence its popularity, even in a time where reading comics and science fiction, yeah, you're kind of, that's kind of for yeah, babies, but we that had, sort of thing. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the thing. We had seen that before. So were George Lucas. Hmm. You know, I grew up in you know, the late 50s, I mean, the late 40s, early 50s, you know, I remember Saturday morning getting up in this little black and white Emerson 13-inch television that was in this big honking cabinet because it had all these tubes in it. And, and, you know, you got horrible reception unless you were in a certain part of, 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 of the L.A. area. I remember watching Flash Gordon. Right. Buster, you know, Larry Buster yes. Crab. Yeah. I remember watching Larry Buster Crab also do uh, uh, Buck mm. Rogers. Uh, I remember Commander Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen. You know, but those were, that was all pulp fiction turned into weekly serial by the studios mm -hmm. where you got 13 chapters because they wanted your ass back in the, in the theater 13 weeks in a row. You know, and I used to see those things at the Saturday matinees when I was a kid in the 50s. So, so did George Lucas. But what he did was he took it to a whole new level. And, and, I, and I worked at Fox for a while, and I'll tell you, there were people at Fox who had no idea what this guy was doing. They didn't have a clue. And the, the way in which Star Wars got... Okay, George was very successful with a movie called American Graffiti, which, which oh, I could, you know, that was my childhood. That was me in, in high school graduating. I wasn't up in the Central Valley. I was in the San Fernando Valley, but cruising the boulevard, mm -hmm. going to the drive-in, mm -hmm. you know, no, I knew those people. I, I didn't know those people, but I knew people just like them. Very successful. He took all his profits and his future earnings and told 20th Century Fox he would leverage that into doing Star Wars. Fox didn't want to do Star Wars. You know, there's nobody who's ever been fired for saying no most of the time in Hollywood. Um, let me tell you one story about why George Lucas turned into one of the most insanely wealthy movie producers in the world. They didn't want to do Star Wars. They said, fine, this movie's going to go out and bomb big time. And little did they suspect. I went to the very first showing in, in San Diego, walked right up to the box office, like 10 minutes before the movie went and bought a ticket. There was maybe, the audience was maybe one-third full. Told my friends about it. We went back to see it the next night. Lines around the block. That's how the word of mouth got it. Some lawyer at Fox forgot to put one little paragraph in the contract they had with Lucas. <laughs> Lucas retained all of the marketing rights to ancillaries. Ooh. 
So all the Hasbro toys, all the comic books, all the coloring books, all the t-shirts. He got to license the lot. Lucas owned all of it. If you see a one sheet for the very first 77 release at the bottom, it says copyright 20th Century Fox Limited, 20th Century Fox Films Incorporated. If you go back and see the re-release, it says copyright Lucasfilm Limited. (laughs) Fox gave him back the copyright to Star Wars. They gave him total ownership in exchange for 20% of the marketing rights and distribution rights for the next two movies. That's how much money that movie was making. And so Fox was willing to do that just for 20% of that slice? 20% of all that's to come in the future, yes. Which was a wise decision from their part. But this is getting back to something we're, we're talking about. This stuff makes money now. That's why people want to do it on the bigger stage. You know, um, I would love to see the perfect version of Dune, getting back to that. You know, sure. there are things about the David Lynch version I like. There are things about the Sci Fi Channel miniseries I like, mm. but nobody's ever done it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Sure. And Jodorowsky had his version, which we were talking about, which was confused. A 12, <laughs> 12 hour, 18 hour long version where he, I don't think, I don't think he finished the book. I just think he kind of, Liked, read the back, and then <laughs> ran with it. And I'm just going to take off from here. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, there's, a, there's a documentary out about it, which yeah. just is, you know, ooh. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, like, it's like the guy wanted to turn Dune into Berlin Alexander plots. You know, he wanted to be Fastbinder. And the fact is, no, you know, there, there's, there's a certain point at which, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong because people are binge watching things now. Yeah. But, you know, I thought, no, you know, your entertainment shouldn't become an endurance contest. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'd like, to, I'd like to throw to both of you there. We've got the Netflix model of we're now going to release the entire season now and we'll spend the next 11 months building up for next year. We'll keep developing it. We know where we're going to go. Yeah. Is, it, it, you it, talk it, the serialization it, of 13 weeks Every Saturday it, it morning. Worked, it worked like crazy for a show called House of Cards in, mm-hmm. in the States you know, with, with uh, Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey. Um, I, I've discovered where I'm not a good audience for that. I watched like the first half of the first season, and I watched like the first three episodes of Daredevil. Mm-hmm. And then I get doing other stuff, and I don't go back. And it's a really weird reason, I think. Yeah. I have a DVR and a satellite, so I'm on, eight, I'm on DirecTV, so I just set it up. So it, it just records all the stuff I want to see, um, and I go, okay, you know, and I, I just menu, 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 boom, boom, I'll watch this. And then I watch stuff with my kid. For some reason, and this is going to sound so lame, it's almost like, oh, yeah, I got to switch out of the receiver to over to the internet, and then I got to go get Netflix, and I don't like their interface very much. I mean, really stupid reasons. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that, is that one of the tricks on good marketing this stuff is the path of least resistance. I also don't watch stuff on my computer. You know, I, I've got, you know, my television in my bedroom will get Netflix. So that's where I have to be if I want to watch the next Daredevil. Um, I guess the other thing I'm kind of fumbling towards is there's so much stuff on now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I have people come to me and say, hey, did you see so-and-so? Like, I have never seen an episode of The Walking Dead. My daughter hates it. My son loves it. My mm. ex-wife, my, my son, absolutely loved Breaking Bad. I've never seen an episode. You know, I mean, 
I've, I was a little frightened there for a couple of weeks. I'll try to Fred's point, and then I'm going to come back yeah. on something you said. Fred? Yeah. No, so there is, there is a lot of money, but I mean, like the, like the music industry, it's become a survival of the fittest, fittest kind of model. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, if it's talked about, if there's buzz, people will watch it. And if there's, a, you know, I mean, when, you know, when I was a kid, you'd watch something on a Monday night at nine, come to school and you talk about the episode with the entire school, mm -hmm. right? So right. that can't happen anymore. And that mm -hmm. entire culture of kind of streamlined, structured content getting fed to you, yeah. essentially creating a generation um, and saying, we are 90s kids, Ooh. we are 80s, we are 70s kids. Yeah. But, but, you, but you just that, touched on, wow, you just touched on something I hadn't even thought of. You can't talk about the water cooler now. Spoilers. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had people, like on my... I have a mailing list, which is dwindling as the internet has exploded. But uh, people will say, you know, spoilers, and then somebody else will say, look, the book's been out for 28 years. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. And then I go, yeah, but that 12-year-old kid just read it yesterday for the first time. Actually, that, uh, there's a, uh, during our first interview with Raymond for the podcast, for the Release the Geek podcast, I talked to him about spoilers. And I'd actually had a, a conversation in the car with some people that I'd seen the movie that night, and I started talking about the movie, not details of the movie, but the general experience. And someone in the car turned at me viciously and said, say spoilers first. Yeah. Said, Listen, <laughs> yeah. this is the, and it got into a conversation of when is the moratorium for spoilers? Now I brought this point up with Raymond when we first started, it's like, but magician, like it was released in 82. Sure, I can talk about Pug, sure I can talk about Aruthra and these things that happen. And Raymond's, Raymond's salient point was around his new markets. And I'm just gonna let the man tell you. Yeah, it, it's, it's like, I, okay, I'm sitting over there signing books, and by the way, you people were great. Uh, really enjoy talking. All right, round of applause for the people. Yeah, give Hold yourself up. a round, round of applause. <laughs> well, not you so much. I, you know. Anyway, <laughs> seriously, um, and they love to talk about stuff. But I'm sitting there looking at the, you know, some, some gentleman in his 40s or whatever who, you know, read it when he was 12, and then right next to him is his son who is maybe 16 and just starting, and, and, I, and I realized... We're learning something about mass media that isn't obvious, or wasn't obvious to me. I have a degree in marketing, but, but it was mass media and public opinion. And I was a salesman, I did a bunch of stuff. But you're right, it was when I was a kid. Oh, did you watch Bonanza last night? You know, because if you ever have a chance to see that episode again, it's going to be maybe this summer during reruns. Mm, yeah. There were no on-demand, there were no VCRs, there were no computer lines. There, you know, it was... Uh, immediate here and now experience. You know, oh no, I had to go to Granny's for dinner and I couldn't watch it, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you want me to tell you about it? Yeah, what happened to little Joe and Hoss? You know, and that's completely changed. Mm. It's, it's, yeah. it's like ancient history. Um, yeah, when did, when did the seeing of a TV show or seeing of a movie stop being an event? Yeah. That this is happening at this point and you better be in front of your television. And then Sports. Sports is it. Mm. Unless you want to go home alone and go like this all the way home and not find out who won the championship game and then mm -hmm. watch it on delay, uh, I would say sports is maybe okay. Sports and pol political debate, I guess, but mm -hmm. even political debate you can watch later. But sports, yeah, you know, you want to see that championship game now. But other mm -hmm. than that, I can't think of anything. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because um, so, I mean, take the Sixth Sense, right? Yeah. I mean, the Sixth Sense was a <laughs> massive hit. Um, because there was a kind of unspoken agreement among anyone who watched it that I'm not going to say the only four words you yeah. need to say to ruin the entire film, which is mm -hmm. Bruce Willis is dead. Oh, 
Sorry All for right, anybody who hasn't oh, seen it. See? Sorry. Oh, he see did it. Oh, exactly. It. But Fred, we but, just but talked the, about But this. the other thing is, there's this whole, there's this whole movement on, on the internet that says, go for it. Mm -hmm. Spoil the way, right? Actually, there's, so, there's one movie that I'm going to throw to you. I'm not going to say it, because even now, it doesn't get done. And that's The Crying Game. Yeah, sure. There is a scene in that The Crying Game. That was the first game. one. Was yeah, tell him. Just tell them all. No, there is a scene. No, no, I'm not spoiling that for anybody. There is a scene in the okay. crime game. I'll I think it's about far one hour and there's an Aerosmith song that touches on the subject. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a scene in the movie <laughs> around about the one hour, 24 minute mark. And it, you would just, you, people would just tell you, just go watch it. Why? What happens? Uh-uh. No, just You need it. to go watch it because it was just unex an unexpected turn yeah. that nobody expected. And so... Sixth Sense kind of built into that. Yeah, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, Sixth Sense built in. Sixth Sense was also it also came at a time when you know the internet was in its infancy. Usual suspects. Like usual Would you suspects, say usual suspects? As well. All those kind of '90s, just mm -hmm. just on the cusp of when internet kind of hit there's, mainstream. There, there, yeah, there's this cadre of films. Not many of them, but I I, I love them because you can only see it for the first time once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the second time you watch it, it's an entirely different film. Crash. A Fight Club, Ooh, wow. yeah. uh, The Usual Suspects, yeah. Hunger, I mean, uh, uh, Crying Game, uh, you know, they're all that way. It's like, once you get the, the MacGuffin, as, as Hitchcock used to call it, you go, wow. And then the second time you watch it, you know what the MacGuffin is, and you sit there going, wow. This is, this, what, I, this yeah. is what I missed. Yeah. These are yeah. all the points. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, and that's when it, because that's what I meant when I said there's this group on the internet, well, this kind of small movement that says, let spoilers, spoilers are going to be spoilers. You know, the mm -hmm. thing is, every, the, the thing with watching Game of Thrones now, or watching anything, is that <coughs> there's so much information a, around a single episode. I mean, I mean when, you, when you listen, like the, the last episode of Game of Thrones, which I won't spoil, um, you know, when you see... If you were here at yesterday's yeah, Walking Dead, next So, um, but there's just, you know, there's, it's like sports commentary. You know, mm -hmm. there's full panels and people discussing mm -hmm. the intricacies of Sansa and this and that and whatever. And, and everybody's <coughs> debating and everyone's arguing to the point that the, the appreciation of the content has kind of evolved as well. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so where once it was that kind of personal, okay, I'm going to be surprised and follow the plot. Mm -hmm. It's like there's this whole new realm of appreciation, which is I've seen it. Now I want to delve into the minutia. Mm -hmm of what's been going on, go back, dissect, yeah. cut up in little pieces mm -hmm. for my own opinion about whether that ending works with the rest of it, mm -hmm. with clip here, clip there, clip wherever. Yeah. And there's this new culture towards, which is, which, is, which is, you can say it's a good or a bad thing, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter, but there's this new thing towards that is the future of entertainment, that, right. that fully interactive, full engagement from right. the viewer. Yeah, I'm going to ask them, there's, a, there's an old line about Explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. At the end of it, you understand how both works, but they're dead. Yeah. Well, the, we have a saying in politics and debate mm -hmm. in a lot of areas, if you're explaining, you're losing. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, one of the things about the Game of Thrones uh, phenomena is that, you know, this, this thing Fred just talked about with the, you know, dissecting and talking, and it's a very communal tribal approach to a subject. It's a way to have a sense of community. And I think that the lack of that, let's go talk around the water cooler Monday morning, TV was an event, is substituted by, let's all get together and drink tea and talk about it. Or right, so there's a migration in that pattern. Right, yeah, so, but, it, but it's, it's the need to share the experience. 
You know, it's very human, very, very human. Uh, one of, you know, like I got a writer, a, a acquaintance of mine, who just went off on, I got a writer's board that I hang out on, science fiction writers. And one, one of the, I, he won't be named, but he went off about, you know, how... Just use his handle. Huh? Just no, use the handle. No, no, I'm not going to say, you know, what his name is. But uh, he went off about, you know, like what a horrible character Sansa was now because when she did the thing she did in the last episode at the very end that turned the thing around. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. Well done. Uh, well done. Uh, but, but you know, how, 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 and I'm going, are you, have you been watching this show? There's not a whole lot of uh, guys you want speaking at the Rotary Club meeting among the cast. You know, there's, there's not a, I mean, nobility is a, is a relative term in that universe. My, my son has this amazing ability to just see through stuff and, and immediately prioritize what's important to know and what's just there to make noise and get in your way. I had dinner with my publisher last, last year, and my publisher publishes George as well. And as I said, I've known George for a very long time. So my son said, hey, when you go have dinner with Jane, uh, I figured out the ending of the book. I mean, the ending of the whole series. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen because, because, because. I went, okay. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'll go ask Jane. So I'm having dinner with Jane Johnson, you know, HarperCollins publisher, my publisher, George's publisher. And I said, hey, by the way, James, you know, my son, James said this, 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 because of that, that, that. And she just went. So my son knows how it's going to end. George may know how it's going to end. Yeah. You know, all the hints are there. My son explained it to me after I got back from London. I went, oh, okay. By the way, knowing what the ending is for me has not done a damn thing. Yeah. There's a, you know, there to is change a, my interest. There is a recent... Uh, Recent reports have come out that spoilers can aid and enhance the experience because it raises expectations. I think I was lucky because my son told me what was going on just, you know, like 30 seconds before I might have figured it out. So I don't feel like anything was ruined for me. But it does give you one different perspective, I think, that's really useful. Well, not useful, but it's different. You know, we're getting back to Fight Club and Soap, I mean, Crash and, and all the rest of it, you know, um, which is... I'm now looking for slightly different things yeah. than I was before. I'm looking for the little tells, poker term, you know, uh, that show me this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and, you know. And, uh, and it's kind of fun uh, because now we know that it's only going for X number of episodes and uh, George hasn't written the last book yet, <laughs> which I think if he's a really evil bastard, he'll write an entirely different book in ending than what we saw on television. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Like for me, the most interesting stuff about shows like Game of Thrones is having a debate about whether the High Sparrow deserves all the hate that he gets. Do you know? It's like, it's like, it's for, you know, there, I was, somebody raised the point and said, we hate the High Sparrow as a character, but in a very anachronistic way, because we have strong contemporary views on religious extremism. But if you were an ordinary person living in that time on the streets, mm -hmm. who would you want in charge? The genocidal yeah. maniacs yeah. who are killing people by the droves mm -hmm. or the dirty man mm -hmm. who's, who's, who's trying to temper them, right? It's, it's, so that debate about, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, you know, Zersi walking down the streets and everyone going, shame, shame, mm -hmm. shame. Yeah. If that's the worst that can happen, to a house mm -hmm. that has done, that has laid such devastation, you know, in so many different ways over the years. Mm -hmm. You know, our bias is, we have a very mm -hmm. interesting bias because we, we come from a different time yeah. about what it means yeah. to be a religious extremist. Uh -huh. But in that system, 
you know, yeah, but I, I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, basically, George wrote a book about bad guys and worse guys. Uh, and w- one of the things about it is, look who you're rooting for. People, you know. Yeah. Okay, Daenerys Stormborn, my gal, who just torched an entire city and sank a fleet and killed. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're sorry about the collateral damage of the civilians who happened to be in the city mm-hmm. when the dragons strafed and all. You know, you know, there's not one person in that story that we care about who hasn't at some time or another been an absolute murderous jerk. And, mm-hmm. and yet George pulls it off with his storytelling mm-hmm. skills. But you're 100% right uh, about the anachronistic qualities. I got a letter from, or not a letter, but an email from my, I got, I, I'm not pointing out where I have four editors, two in, in London and two in New York. And I sent them the first five chapters of the new book, and, some, and one of them said, gee, what do you think about taking one of those two guys and making, it, making him a girl? Because we don't have a really powerful female character in the first five chapters. They're all wives and barmaids. I almost lost my mind, and if I hadn't been friends with this editor for 20 years, I probably would have been throwing things across the room. It's like, woman, I'm the guy who created Mara of the Acoma. I'm the guy who gave you Miranda and Sandrina. I know how to write a powerful female character who isn't a chick in chainmail bikini or a, a guy in drag, you know? But look at the cultures I'm writing in. These are incredibly male-dominated, sexist cultures. And for a woman to exert herself and shine has to be convincing. It has to fit within the internal logic. You know, Cersei's the way she is because she's a manipulative, crazy bitch. But she's never sat on the throne. Yeah. She's never been the person in charge. You know, look at uh, uh, the uh, oh, senior moment. Jet Light just kicked my ass. Uh, the Avengers uh, with Black Patrick Widow and the gal Bla- Black um, Widow, huh? Black Widow and the Avengers? No, no, I'm talking. No, I'm talking about the, with you know Patrick McNee and oh Patrick McNee and um, uh, yeah, it's the duo. It was the duo that yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway. She's playing the grandma from Dornish or whatever yeah. it is, and again, she's the matriarch, but she's manipulating the hell out of everybody else. Because that's what she's permitted to do in that culture. Yeah. You know, she's not going to grab a sword and start cutting heads. And it really is annoying, I speak for myself only, to start getting criticism when somebody starts laying on uh, uh, modern contemporary standards. I had to peel Janie Wirtz off the ceiling one day when she called me. because See, Janie does things that I just absolutely refuse to do, like reads fan blogs of criticism, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, don't believe your critics because if you believe the good ones, then you got to believe the bad ones too. And, but somebody talked about the Empire series and was doing a, a, a really deep analysis. But the thing that made Janie pissed was when I created the, ca- the the character of Kevin. This critic, just like a month or two ago, said, "Oh well," and now Feist and Wurtz introduced the rape culture and. Jenny went ballistic, and I had to take an hour on the phone to convince her not to write a response. You know, when when idiots write shit like that, all you do is crickets. Mm-hmm. You know, because not only is that a modern thing, the guy is not that guy. He's not the male rape culture. You know, he's just a guy who's got a different way of looking at things than the other mm-hmm. characters. But yeah, we run into that all the time. Yeah. There was, I think we were talking Emma Peel, the character of Emma Peel, Diana Rigg. Oh, yeah, Diana Rigg, yeah. Diana Rigg, Who, yeah. who 
you know, you look at grandma now and you just have to go back and realize just what an amazingly smoking woman she was in the 60s. So yeah, shameless plug, that answer was brought to us by Always on Wi-Fi. Anyway, um, shameless, totally shameless. Um, Fred's point earlier, the, um, the shift from the just straight binary good, bad to the there's a range here that we need to be talking about and this is what Game of Thrones is, that there's varying degrees of bad all the way through. Uh, we had a panel on Friday talking about the morals and ethics, uh, the ideas of utilitarianism, that how do you make your decisions based on what's happening in the world that is not always cut and dried. There's much more of a prevalence of those sorts of things. Is that because there's a change in a willingness to accept that the world isn't just shiny good guy, uh, moustache twi twiddling bad guy? Well, just coming back to the topic of, of the talk. Um, oh, no, no, we've moved on. We've moved on. But just, <laughs> just coming back to it, the, you know, is that we, we're living in an increasingly politically sensitive, politi you know, people are, you know, political correctness is kind of the new totalitarianism, <laughs> really. Um, and it's getting, and it's kind of, it's reaching points, you know, and Stephen Fry comes out and says, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that. Um, what makes... What speculative fiction powerful is that it's a playground, uh, it's a toolkit that you have with extra special tools to get to say the things that you want to say in whatever way you want without being able, without actually labeling anything. I mean, so you know, for you know, the, I mean, what was the first interracial moment on screen was Star Trek, mm -hmm. right? But they did it as interspecial, right? Right, and, so, they did, and they did it against their will. Yeah. They, they did it against the will, and and there's a you know there's there's a lot of no matter what you feel, no matter what you believe, there's speculative fiction just allows so much room to play around with that it, on, in a kind of within safe safe fish mm -hmm. parameters. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it lets you act stuff out. I mean, it, yeah. it's it's like okay, you know, people think Ramsey Bolton was the most murderous bad guy in the show only because Joffrey's been gone for a while. At that level, comparing those two guys is just, as to which is crazier is you know like do you do you like fish or do you, do you like salmon or trout? I mean they're both they're both fish, but the point is it allows us to see in real time uh, just how crazy those two guys were. You know uh, what would have been great yeah. instead of Jon Snow and Sansa versus you know the Battle of the Bastards versus Ramsay, would you have a situation in which a character like Joffrey would be against Ramsay? Because then, because because that just because that would because you know that would really open it up and you'd yeah. be like, okay, I have no idea how I'm going to feel about this yeah. well, until you, it plays well, out. Well, a sports analogy: you have football teams that you bo you hate both of them, and you're going, can I root for a zero-zero tie? <laughs> you know, or, or for them to take each other out. That's yeah, yeah Joffrey taking out Ramsey. But I mean, the, I mean, they're credible examples of you know, um, like just just in terms of ideas, and you know, we're talking about feminism. You know, I mean, possibly the most truly feminist character uh, in the last uh, few decades. Has Sorry, been, you're going to bring that topic up I, with less than two I, minutes I, to go. I'm, I'm going to bring it up quickly, but right. um, Ripley from Aliens. Oh, yeah, right. sure. Ripley from Aliens, fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, put her against characters like Thelma and Louise, right? Mm -hmm. Thelma and Louise are not true feminist characters because, you know, give some girls some guns, have them act like men. That's not feminism. Right. Exactly. Chicks in chainmail and guys in drag. However, Ripley is running around on a spaceship, killing aliens, <clears throat> is a far more feminist character. And that's the power 
mm-hmm. of you know that's that's the kind of room that you have when you've got speculative fiction. No, I great. mean, even the first film was essentially about a male's fears regarding pregnancy, really. You know, followed by a sequel about feminism. Oh, so it wasn't a uh, the, thing just coming out of my stomach. Okay. Yeah. Right. So anyway, the, the the point is that there's a lot going there's a lot going on uh, in speculative fiction beneath the surface, and and it, it should you know it should be more kind of understood and accepted and and appreciated and engaged upon by the mainstream audience. I guess the answer to your question is speculative fiction is on the rise because people like that stuff. Yeah. Because people. There we go. We've we've spent people 50 like minutes to come stuff. up to. They like it. They like it. And I think we're done. <laughs> cool. Is that it? That's, cool. that's pretty much it, yeah. Uh, that was Remedy Feist and Fred Stratum talking about the rise of speculative fiction, which, yeah, well, you've just received your answer. Kappa! <laughs> free! That was Release the Geek, the official podcast of Geek XP. What the chain of command is? It's a chain I go get and beat you with till you understand who's in rut command here. To contact the show, you can email us at releasethegeek, one word, at geekxp.co.za. Thanks for listening. I'll be back.